Good morning, Idlewild, Odessa. Uh, listen, Chris told me that there might not be a lot of people here today because there's some trips, a creation museum thing. But he said that the people that were going to be here today were going to be really excited to be here today. <laughs> so one more time, good morning, Odessa. Uh, it's more like it. I can tell him he was right. Then what a blessing it is to be here today. If you don't know me, I'm the missions pastor of our Van Dyke uh, campus. Been a pastor for missions almost 10 years. And one of the biggest blessings as a missions pastor is to have been part of the formation of this campus. It's just uh, amazing to walk in here and to see the changes every month. Something new pops up. I love those lights up there, your tech guys. I mean, I just, it's just a nice warm place. The people are warm. Uh, I'm just so excited to be. I'm blessed to have my wife with me, my sister, and some friends from Brandon visiting you folks. So uh, just excited. I'm, I'm, but even above all things, I'm excited that you're here. I'm really excited about that because I think you're here for the same reason that I'm here. Uh, let me tell you why I'm here. I'm here because I'm, I have a desire that God will use my message today to, make, to help him speak to you in a very special, powerful, and supernatural way. That's my desire, and that's what I desire. And I, and I know that you're here today because you desire for God to speak to you in a very personal and supernatural way. So my, my prayer today would be for God to give the desires of our hearts today as we get into to the, to God's words. So I'm going to start by asking you, if, if I were to ask you the question, define for me the word grace, well, you probably, those of you that are mature Christians, would come up with the word, the acronym grace, G-R-A-C-E. You've heard that for many times. You know, God's redemptions at Christ's expense there. Uh, that's a typical Christian answer. Uh, others, if you don't get it mixed up with mercy, you say, well, it's God's favor on us that we don't deserve. And that's another great answer. They're both good and great answers but they're both theologically deficient. In a recent winter in the southern part of California, uh, the rains of El Nino started to pour down on that region, and they poured day after day after day nonstop. And they created some mudslides and avalanches of dirt in that part of the region, and it became a nightmare for one particular family. One night, as the rains were pouring, an avalanche of mud tore down through their home and divided the house in half and took in their path half of their house. Mom and dad realized that in that part of the house that flew down the mountain was their little baby that had been sleeping in their room. Frantically, they walk out into the night and they start to search for their baby. Walking through the muck and the mire that was knee-deep, they searched all night, they dug, they called for him, they moved around with their flashlights searching and searching with no avail and no success. The next morning, a rescue firefighter shows up at their door, shows up with a, a mud cake bundle of mud in his hand. It was the baby. Filthy, but alive. You know what that mom did? That mom 
grabbed that baby and he hugged him. He embraced him. Man, how filthy and mucky and smelly that baby was. He just grabbed onto him and kissed him and hugged him. And then he took him and she took him and, and she washed all that muck away. He cleaned him real good, polished him up real good. And then she promised that I will never let you fall in the mud ever again. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful illustration of the grace of God, isn't that? Because see, that, that's what Jesus did for you and for me, what God did for you and for me. See, one day we were covered in the muck and the filthiness of our sins from our head to our toes. And this muck was moving us, was taking us down a path that was going to end up in a really ugly, dirty place called hell. And he sent his son to the earth. And, the certain, and his son got all dirty with us, put the sin around him and the dirt of the world. He embraced us and he pulled us out of that muck. And he pulled us out of the muck and he saved us from that. And not only did he save us, but he wants us to stay out of that muck. He wants us to be, we live a life that is a sinless life. And he does that through his grace. I know everybody here, or a lot of you believe that, but a lot of you here also believe that this is where the grace of God ends in your life. That once the grace of God saves you, it's done its part in your life. So I'm here today to tell you and remind you that the grace of God is so much more. That the grace of God is so much more. That on, not only he rescues you, he wants you to remain out of it, but he changes your life and he uses the grace of God to change your life. Look what Max Lucado says about that. He says, grace comes after you. It rewires you from insecure to God secure, from regret riddled to better because of it, from afraid to die to ready to fly. Grace is the voice that calls us to change, and then it gives us the power to pull it off. That's the grace of God. And the Christian life is a supernatural life, and it's a life that needs continual dependence on the grace of God to be able to survive and thrive in this life. So today's verses... We're going to look at the book of Titus, which you've been in a series already. And we're in chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15. Verses 11 through 15. And as you know, and Pastor Chris has already told you, this is a letter that Peter writes to Titus. And Titus is a pastor in the island of Crete that is located off the southwest shore of the country of Greece. And, and the people there, he writes it because the people there are living a life that is not conformed to the grace of God. So he writes to them because they're doing what's right in their own eyes. So he writes this letter to them. But what does that have to do with us today? Well, I believe it has to do with us today because many of us, like the people in the island of Crete, don't understand what grace is all about. Don't understand the impact of grace in our lives. <laughs> so my prayer to thee is, is when you walk out of here today, you're going to hear a lot of stuff. You're going to forget 95% of it. But I want you to remember one thing. 
I want you to remember that the grace of God first saves you and then it trains you to live a godly life that is zealous for good works. If you forget anything, don't forget this, that the grace of God saves you and then it trains you to live a godly life that is zealous for good works. So let me, let me read today's verses for you so that you can get your, your heart and your mind in tune with God's word. Verses 11 through 15, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. These are the words of God, and these are the words that we're asking God to just emboss in our hearts so that we would walk out of here, not only listening to his word, but doing his word. So as we're seeing this, we see that Paul is focusing on the grace of God. And who better to talk to us about the grace of God than Paul? See, Paul encountered face-to-face the grace of God on the Damascus road, and the grace of God just completely change this life and that's what we want for grace to do to our lives to completely change our lives and in that paul gives us three ways in which the grace of god will impact us in which the grace of god will change our lives and the first thing he tells us is that the grace of god brings us freedom that's the first thing that grace does to us it brings us freedom if you know anything about grace you've got to know that you're absolutely sure in your hearts that you've done nothing to deserve grace. You've done absolutely nothing to deserve grace. Uh, That there's just no way that you've done anything to receive the grace of God and that you never would have gone after the grace of God by yourself. You've got to understand that. But you have to understand that the grace of God appeared at the right time in your life that the grace of God appeared in your, at the right time in your life. And that's what verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared. And in the Greek verse, uh, this word has appeared and its derivative, derivatives say that it's something that was made clear, something that was not known is now known. That's what word, that word appears. In, in the Greek literature, the word appeared uh, kind of is a technical name for a, a hero that flies into a very difficult situation and grabs somebody that's in trouble and he saves them. That's, that's a Greek literature. That's what that word refers to. And it's in the past tense. That means that this grace appeared in the past. So the question that calls is, so when did this grace of God appear? Well, the grace of God appearance is a historical evidence. The grace of God appeared at the birth of Jesus Christ. That's when the grace of God appeared. Uh, it was a historical event, and we see that in John 1.17, where it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
when grace appeared on earth, when Jesus Christ appeared on earth, grace appeared on earth. When grace appeared on earth, salvation was made available. That's the process on how it gets all the way to salvation. And that's what John 3.17 tells us. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. So the grace of God not only appeared at the right time in history, at the right time in your life, but the grace of God also appeared for all of humanity. The grace of God appeared for all of humanity. That's what the second part of verse 13 gives us, where it says, bringing salvation for all people. The offer of salvation, it's offered to all people. And all people here refers to the thousands of people groups that are spread throughout the world, even those that don't have the presence of a believer in their midst. Salvation came for those people. It doesn't mean that everybody is saved. It doesn't mean that everybody is saved or will be saved. For we know that those that are saved are only that those that acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Those that do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will spend a time of eternal life separated from God in hell. So not everyone is saved. Uh, in fact, it is not a universal salvation. It's a universal opportunity for salvation. It's a universal availability for salvation. That's what the, what the grace of God is. And that's what John 3.17 tells us. For God didn't send his son. And, and, and that's what he told you. He didn't send his son so that might be saved, but they ordered that the world might be saved through him. So this grace is, is offered to, to all of us. It's offered to everyone. Anybody can receive the grace. The problem is that not everyone will see the grace of God. Uh, they will continue in bondage in their sin and carrying that burden of, of sin despite grace being so close to them. They'll continue that. And, and there might be somebody in here today uh, that is carrying that burden of sin, that committed a sin so long ago, but just the thought and the thinking of that sin is a constant burden in your life. It haunts you daily. It robs you of the joy of Jesus Christ. It doesn't let you serve fully. It's almost like a movie that's constantly playing in your life over and over and over, and you just get, can't get rid of it. So you continue to walk in bondage, and at the same time, you have the extended arms of the grace of God right next to you. So here's what I want you to think tonight. I want you to think today. I want you to think that the grace of God will deliver you from sin's penalty. It will deliver you from sin's power, and it will deliver you from sin's presence in your life. That's what the, the grace of God does. It will deliver you from sin because that's what Romans 6.14 tells us. It says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Listen. Jesus doesn't come and whisper in your ears, Remember your sins. No, no, he shouts from heaven, remember the cross. Remember that I forgave you. So grab on to that grace of God. Let that sin go. Let it pass away. 
and start rejoicing in the joy of your salvation. And that's what you need to do with the grace of God. It just does that for us. And, but then the question is, so how do we live now? How, how do we live in light of the grace forgiving us of our sins? Uh, do we say, listen, now that I'm under the grace of God, I can live any way I want to live uh, because I can continue to sin because I'm no longer under the law. I'm under grace, right? Well, the answer to that is an absolutely not. And the reason is, is because the grace of God teaches us how to live a godly life. The grace of God teaches us how to live a godly life. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, when you and I were saved, we were automatically registered in Grace Academy. And our teacher is the Father himself, and he teaches us through the Holy Spirit and the, and, the, and the course book, there's only one book, it's the Bible. And that's how we are engaged, and that's what grace does. It brings that I- initial change. It changes our nature so that we can start living godly lives. It, it changes our nature, and then it changes the way we live. And this change in our life, listen, it's an expectation from God that he provides by his grace you're just not saved and receive god to just continue on the way you've always lived no god expects you to tap into the gra- his grace for him to change your life in fact your life should be what galatians 2:20 says galatians 2:20 says i have been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live but christ lives in me In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So a changed heart is a reflection of a changed life. A changed heart is a reflection of a changed life. So the second question is you might thinking, well, okay, so how does that grace work? what What exactly does grace teach us? I'm going to give you a couple of things that grace teaches you. The first thing it does, it teaches you to say no. That's what verse 12 says, training us to renounce. To say no to what? Well, the first thing it says to say no to ungodliness. Ungodliness are our words, our actions that are opposed to God. is a way of life that has no reverence to God, making decisions without taking in consideration God's worth. That's when you live an ungodly life. Because without the presence of God, of the grace of God in your life, you have no defense against the temptations of the world. Without the influence of the grace of God, you would be continuing to say yes when you should be saying no to the temptations of God. That is the influence of the grace of God in your life. It teaches you to say no to ungodliness. But it also teaches you to say no to worldly desires. Worldly desires. What are worldly desires? These are the sins that uh, you might not have committed them, but you've had a desire to commit them. 
It's a design of preoccupation with the things of the world, power, prestige, popularity, possessions. And Paul, and Paul tells you, listen, this is what you need to do. In 1 Peter 2.11, Paul tells you, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exile to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So the grace of God not only teaches us to say no to anything that we can take with us and present to Christ when we're face to face to him. It teaches us to say no to all these things. But another thing it does, it teaches us to say grace. Yes, the grace of God teaches us to say yes. That's the second part of verse 212, where it says, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It teaches us to say yes to living a godly life. And, and what is a godly life? A godly life is wanting to ha- live a life like God would live that life. That's what a godly life, and that is a life that is self-controlled and upright. A life that is self-controlled and upright, self-control, meaning that you don't make decisions based on other people's opinions, and you don't let the circumstances dictate your decisions. You dictate your decisions by the Word of God. And a life that is upright is a life that does good, that treats others like they would like to be treated themselves. That's an upright life. It's a godly life. John MacArthur says, God's redeeming grace breaks sin and power and dominion in our lives and gives us a new nature that desires holiness. That's what the grace of God does in your life. It gives you a nature that all you want to do is you just want to be holy. You want to be upright. You want to be godly. That's what grace does in your life. The challenge with that is that our walk with God is challenged in in many areas in our life. It, It is challenged where we work. It is challenged with our friends. It is challenged with what we eat, how we dress, challenged with what we see. But of all those things, the one that challenges us most these days is the entertainments that the world throws at us and tempts us with. So what grace does, grace will help you to ask honest questions of yourself and of the entertainments that you choose to participate in life. Let me give you a couple of questions that you might want to jot down before you do this or that. It might be good to ask, am I conscious that whether I'm in a bright church, a darkened theater, or a closed room, that I am still in the presence of God? Or do I think that Christ goes away when I turn the switch off. Mm, convicting, huh? Well, Colossians 3.17 tells you, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Second question. Have I lost the ability to say no? Have I lost the ability to say no? You know, Christ takes all the idols of the world, the sex, the money, the pleasures, and and he has them bowed down to him. If you are living living your life, reigned on these idols and their anticipation of what they would do in your life, thinking about them, then you're being bowed to them. Then you're the one that's bowing down to these idols. Look what John 2, 15, 17 says. 
He says, do not love the world, the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Whatever does, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Have you lost the ability to say no to certain entertainments? Last one. Do I care if my behavior impacts those around me? It's not asking if what you're doing is bad or good. That's not the question. The question is, do you care if your behavior has a negative impact on someone around you? Because you know the Christian life can be lived in isolation. You know, we have to live with other Christians. We must live with other Christians. That's what God calls us. And our actions, our decisions impact those around us. Romans 14, 13 tells us that. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but look what it says, but rather decide, rather decide, it's a decision you have to make, to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in a way of a brother. It has nothing to do whether it's a sin or not a sin, good or bad. It says, am I going to make that brother stumble? Am I going to tempt him? Am I going to make his life more difficult? That's the question you need to ask. Because the world needs to see a saved sinner so that they can see the grace of God. That's the only way they're going to see the grace of God. They've got to see how a saved sinner lives a godly life. And we've seen that the grace of God not only brings us freedom, and the grace of God not only teaches us, but then the grace of God, Paul says here, that the grace of God encourages us. It encourages with his hope and with his work. Living a godly life is it's, it's not an easy task. In fact, it's a lot easier for me to preach it from up here than to live it. Way much easier than that. And there are times where we get discouraged, disillusioned, depressed, and, and we need some encouragement. And Paul knew that. He knew that the people of Crete, they needed some encouragement, and he gives them encouragement. And the first way that he gives them encouragement is by telling them that he, the grace of God gives us a hope worth waiting for. He says, this is how I'm going to encourage you with the grace, because it gives us a hope that is worth waiting for. Titus 2.13 says, waiting for our blessed hope. Uh, the phrase waiting for here, it tells us some, that something is going to happen in the future. Uh, waiting here is not the waiting you do in the traffic line, in, in, the, in, the, in the bank. It's not when you're waiting in the supermarket. It's not when you're waiting in traffic on, on the highway. No, it, it's a wait that literally means looking for. That's what you're waiting for. You know it's going to happen. You're certain that it's going to happen. And since it's talking about the, the, the blessed hope, and that's, what it's, that's what it's talking. What is it that you're waiting for? Because this waiting for is going to impact your life, the way you treat your friends, the way you treat your family. Just because you are waiting for will change the way you live and treat others. And the question is, waiting for what? Well, the blessed hope. Waiting for the blessed hope. That's what the verse says. And the blessed hope here is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, the, that's what gives the people of Crete, that's what gives, should give us hope, the return of our Jesus Christ. And, and normally we would read the word hope thinking something that's uncertain. You know, I hope I get that raise. We all won't know if that'll happen. I hope I can come back and visit you. I'm not sure that can happen. But here, here's a sure thing. 
We're encouraged because his return is a sure thing. We're speaking about something certain, something that will happen. We know that Jesus Christ will return someday. We know that we will meet him face to face. And this hope encourages us to get through the difficult times, to get through those times that seem hopeless in this world. July 2nd, 2013, John Garver was sitting on the center span. The center span is a, a three-foot a three ledge on the middle span of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. See, John Garver was 32 years old, and this is, he flew into San Francisco. This was not the first time he flew into San Francisco. In fact, this was the third time that he flew into San Francisco to attempt suicide. After a couple of hours of the officer on duty, bridge duty that day, trying to talk him off of the ledge, John Garver turns to that officer and he says to the officer, Officer, have you ever heard of Pandora's box? If you and I know a little bit of Greek mythology, and I wasn't good at that, but Greek mythology, you would know that the god Zeus, god little g, god Zeus, has sent to earth Pandora, a demigod. He sent them to earth with a box. And he told the world, you are on earth, do not open that box. Never, ever open that box. Well, curiosity got the best of Pandora. And Pandora did open the box. And when Pandora opened that box, out flew all sorts of evil and sorrow and pain and anger towards all of humanity. The only good thing in that box was hope. So John Garver that day asked the officer, Officer, what happens when you open the box and there is no hope there? He paused, he turned to his left, and he was gone. So why do we need the blessed hope today? We need the blessed hope because it will sustain us when nothing on earth can sustain us. It, it will give us a purpose. When you don't have any purpose in life, the blessed hope is going to give you a purpose to live. Uh, the blessed hope is going to give you some strength. Strength when your body drains out of your physical strength is going to give you some supernatural strength. Because it's impossible for you to live dependent on the hope that this world offers. you got to live dependent on the hope that is to come. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, look what it says. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, look what it says, where we are all people most to be pitied. If your hope is in this world, in the circumstances, we're most to be pitied. That's why we need the blessed hope. But if we're honest, if we're honest with each other today, I would say that the vast majority of the people 
probably not even thinking about the blessed hope. It's probably if you have a job, uh, you're okay health-wise, and you're not in the middle of a storm, the last thing on your mind is not the blessed hope. In fact, I would say, risk myself to say, that some here will say, Lord, not today. Don't come today. Well, you won't say it with your mouth. That's not Christianese, you know. You'd say it with your heart. You'd say it with how you live. You say, Lord, um, can you wait till my son finishes college? Not today. Lord, not today. Lord, can you wait till I find a man or a woman so I can get married? Lord, not today. Uh, hey, Lord, uh, can I wait till I get that promotion that I've been waiting for? Lord, not today. In fact, I bet some of you will say, Lord, can you wait till USA plays Portugal tonight? <laughs> Lord, not today. That's what you would say. You know, and you've got to be honest. Listen, I, I have... A not today. What is your not today? Let me, let me, let me tell you what my not today. I'd say, Lord, let me, let me, not today, let me make sure I do something that is worthwhile in the kingdom. Uh, something that when I stand before you, you say, good and faithful, Ray. Uh, that's my not today. So in the meantime, Lord, not today. What is your not today? What causes you to have a not today? I think the cause of you having a not today is focus in time. Those are the things. Focus, because you're focused on so many things that are not kingdom-minded, so many things that are not earthly-minded, that you waste your time and you have time to think about the blessed hope. And time, because you say, you know, not today, because I've got a plenty. I've got a lot of time. There's plenty of time. I'm only 18. I'm only 15. I'm only 60, and we live now to 80 and 90. Not that I've got time. The solution to the time problem is Psalm 39.4 that says, Oh, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. I'll take care of your time problem right there. Memorize that. But let me tell you who is thinking of the blessed hope. Uh, you know who's thinking of the blessed hope? Uh, the brokenhearted. The one who lost a loved one and is waiting for them in heaven. Ah, that person is thinking of blessed hope so much. Uh, the one that is called the suffering servant. The one that wakes up every day with a pain and goes to sleep with that same pain day after day. And it will never get better because there is no cure for that pain. That's who's thinking about the blessed hope. Uh, you know what is the burdened believer? The believer that's been out of work for 10 years now, he can't get a job and he can't put food on the table for his family. These are the people that have the blessed hope in the tip of their mouth. These are the people that have probably memorized Revelations 22 where it says, even some, come Lord Jesus. I mean, these people are ready now for the blessed hope to come. So the blessed hope encourages us when things look hopeless, when we, we just have a burden that we can't carry, it encourages us to think about the blessed hope. But, but he also says that the grace encourages by creating in us a zeal for good works. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, who what? Who are zealous 
for good works. Listen, Jesus Christ gave himself. He died on the cross and he rose again so that you may be saved. And he did. Uh, he, he did this so that you will be purified. And he did. But he also did this so that you can become a people that belong to him. A people, like the verse says, who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. Look at Ephesians 2.10. I'm sure you've studied this before. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice in this verse that Paul doesn't say to do good works. Anybody can do that. What he's talking in here is to be zealous of doing good works. And the word zealous in the time of Jesus were people that were fully committed to doing something to the extent that they would lay their life down and die in order to accomplish the task. That is what it is to be zealous, fully committed to doing a cause. And that's the kind of people that God's looking for. That's the kind of people that God's looking because Second Chronicles 16, I love this verse. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Can you visualize that verse? I mean, you can see God just walking around. And says, Let's see, is there fully committed in this section? This, uh, this, I think it's one over here. Uh, no, maybe not. Uh, uh, so, that's it. That's God just looking around who's fully committed to him. That's what he's doing. Uh, listen, for those of you that are tweeting, here's a tweet for you. It says, you were not created to live a hands-off Christian life. You were created to live a hands-on Christian life. In a hands-on Christian life is a life that is zealous for good works. Are you fully committed to something? I, I think you are. Whether you know it or not, you are fully committed to something. Young or old, you're fully committed to something. I just pray that it's something that God prepared beforehand for you. Nothing that you just picked and decided to do on your own. Elizabeth Elliot wrote the book, The Shadow of the Almighty. It's really a subtitle of the life and testimony of Jim Elliot. A great book, if you ever want to read a great book, of, of the life of a man that is zealous for good works, the life of a man that is fully committed to doing the work of the Lord. See, Jim Elliot was a 23-year-old young man that got speared to death in the jungles of Ecuador by the Alca Indians as he was trying to take them the gospel. He speared by them and died with his four friends. And in this book, I want to share a couple of quotes of what it is to live a, a life fully committed. What a man that is zealous for good works says. Look at two quotes from Jim Elliot. At the age of 22, he wrote, I see clearly now that anything, whatever it is, if it is not be done on the principle of grace, it is not of God at the age of 22. Then back off at the age of 20, he wrote to his 15-year-old sister. He told his sister, Sister, fix your eyes on the rising morning star. Live every day as if the Son of Man were at the door and gear your thinking to the fleeting moment. Walk as if the next step would carry you across the threshold of heaven. That's a fully committed man, a man that is zealous for good works. And I remember when, when I was younger, I was zealous for basketball. I mean, I loved 
basketball. I played ba- Every waking hour of my high school years, I played basketball. I-, I would sleep with my basketball next to me. I would have breakfast with my basketball on my table. I would study with my basketball dribbling in my room. I just loved the basketball. It was my passion. I was committed to it. And, and then I became a follower of Christ, and I asked myself, what if? What if, if I was more committed to the Word of God at a younger age? What if, was I, if I was fully devoted to serving Him at a younger age? What if I was more dedicated, instead of spending so much time with the ball, I would spend some time with the book? I asked that. But then as you get mature as a Christian, you know, we don't want to live in, in the what-ifs. But we want to live in the what now. In fact, we want to do what Paul says in Acts 20, 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify about the gospel of the grace of God. So I chose not to live in the what ifs. I chose to live in the what now. Uh, That's what I chose to do. What now? So now I'm fully dedicated to this word. I'm hungry for the word. I want to be committed to the word of God because I know I want to live zealous for good works because the best thing I can do, the best good work is to tell others about the grace of God, to live what verse, verse 15 tells us, that it says to declare these things. That's the best good deeds that I can live. So don't live in the what if. Live in the what now. And that's what I want to leave you with the words, what now. Listen, these are the words that I want you to remember, what now. Because now that you know, now that you know, that the the grace of God first saves you, and then it trains you to live a godly life, zealous for good works. Now that you know that, now what? Now what do you do? Uh, will, will you delete those not todays from your life so that you can think of the blessed hope now? Uh, will you eliminate and learn to say no to that lifestyle that keeps you from living a godly life now? Will you say, I'm going to be zealous for good works now and there's one question that might apply to someone here is will you receive the grace of god now will you receive the grace of god now you've got to be committed the grace of god helps you to be committed devoted and zealous for good works but without the grace of god in your life you can't be committed you can't be devoted and you can't be zealous so as daniel prepares to close this tonight in a time of worship i want you to listen to this i want you to know that the grace of god will change your life the grace of god will give you power and sustain you in the most difficult times in your life The grace of God will give you hope when you don't have hope. It will give you purpose when you don't have purpose. It will help you hang on when you can't hang on anymore. So my last words to you, if 
if you haven't received the grace of God, now is the time to receive the grace of God.